Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and my co-hosts, as usual, are Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hello, guys. And joining us on Zoom today, all the way from LA, is Mr. Michael Simmons. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, fellas. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great to have you. You're an LA night owl, so we're talking mid-morning. You're talking in the very small hours of the Los Angeles night. It's great to see you. Great to have you here. For those who don't know, Michael is a wonderful writer for Mojo and other publications. He's written brilliant liner notes for three of Dylan's bootleg series box sets. He won ASCAP's Deems Taylor Virgil Thompson Award for his Michael Bloomfield notes. And he was also dubbed the father of country punk by Cream's Robert Duncan, of which more later. Michael, <laughs> shall we go back to the start of your country punk story? Your dad, Matty, famously launched National Lampoon magazine in 1970. But before that, he published Cheetah magazine, which you yourself have described as a well-writ and designed slick papered mag for hippies. Will you tell us about being a teenage office boy at Cheetah Magazine in 1967? First of all, it was a summer of love. So it was a strange time because on one hand, I was at war with my parents because I was a wannabe teenage hippie. And at the same time, my father saw dollar signs in this younger generation and uh, decided to cash in. So he was sort of torn. And meanwhile, I was thrilled. So the very first, the, the editor-in-chief initially was a guy named Jules Siegel. In the first issue of Cheetah, I can't remember the exact month, he wrote a piece called Goodbye Surfing, Hello God. And it was the first revelation to the world that Brian Wilson was a raving lunatic, basically. <laughs> and, I mean, the world had no idea. They didn't know about Smile or any of this stuff. And so the magazine was an attempt. Uh, it also, it had, and this was my father's idea. I got to give him credit for this. It also had a centerfold of Mama Cass nude. Crikey. Yeah. Could two pages encapsulate Mama Cass nude? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Actually, it was the cover. So it was okay. the inside cover. <laughs> right. And it was taken by Jerry Schatzberg, actually, who took a lot of the uh, Dylan Blonde on Blonde photos. In fact, he took the cover, Blonde on Blonde. And it was a great magazine. It was too smart. It was a little too ahead of its time. Uh, Robert Criscott was the film critic and an editor. Ellen Willis was sort of the managing editor. And I had a huge crush on Ellen Willis. She was like my ideal smart hippie chick. <laughs> you know, you guys probably know Ellen's work. Yeah, yeah I, I have yeah. a copy of Out of the Vinyl Deeps uh, in my bookshelf. 
Yeah, great tremendous, writer. tremendous. Great yeah, and and really, her and Ellen Sander were the first major women rock critics. There are probably a couple of others. Anyway, Cheetah was a great magazine, but it only lasted eight months. I got to hang out with all these freaks, so I was delighted. My father had mixed feelings. <laughs> I also ran away from home before the first issue came out. That caused a bit of a problem. So my fa- when I returned home, it's a long story. We don't have the time. Um, <laughs> my father made me go talk to Larry Dietz, who is the second editor-in-chief. And Larry uh, questioned me about my drug usage. And, of course, I lied. <laughs> Because I what, knew you, mean, you, told, to... you told him you were taking drugs when in fact you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, anyway, I mean, Summer of Love was an amazing time, but that now's not the time to get into that. But within a couple of years, Maddie saw a dollar signs again when uh, he worked with three of the guys who did who who published the uh, edited the Harvard Lampoon, and then they begat the National Lampoon, which within a few years became the most successful humor magazine in America. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that UK listeners will have heard of, but it won't be that familiar to them. Or, you know, it was, I don't know about Mark. Could you, no, did no. you ever see National Lampoon? Yeah, then? No, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you see it in, in Soho magazine stores, which sold international magazines, you'd see it. But you didn't see it in sort of normal normal sort of stores. The movies. I think the movies is what made most Brits aware of National Lampoon as as an institution. But yes, yeah, yes, I think that's absolutely right. Which, which prompts me to to ask you about uh, like John Belushi, among other things. It's a great story that you have told about Belushi giving you your first line of cocaine as your <laughs> as his present to you on your eighteenth birthday and saying. Well, tell us that story. <laughs> well, I, I when I was 17, 18, I, during the day when I wasn't going to school, I worked at the Lampoon. Uh, I was Michael O'Donoghue's assistant. O'Donoghue was one of the early editors and a genius, and he went on to be the head writer at Saturday Night Live. Anyway, at night, I worked at a show, a musical that the Lampoon had playing in, the, in Greenwich Village called National Lampoon's Lemmings. And it was a satire of Woodstock. And in the cast was Chevy Chase, John Belushi, uh, Christopher Guest, and some other folks. And I became really close with, with Belushi. He wasn't famous yet. He was just, uh, he was brilliant. Uh, and he was the uh, MC at this faux Woodstock festival that we were satirizing. Anyway, I worked there at night. I was the door guy. You know, I tear people's tickets. And so I'm at the Lampoon during the day. And John comes up to my desk and he says, "Um, before the show tonight, I want you to drop by my pad. And I have a a birthday present for you. And uh, I said, okay. So he lived on, uh, he and Judy, his wife, Judy Belushi, lived on West 4th Street. In the village. In fact, I believe it may have been the same building where Dylan and Susie, Susie Rodolo lived. Uh, we've never ascertained whether that's accurate. But um, so I went over there, and John brings me into the kitchen. And he sits me down, and he pulls out this white powder and he lays it on the kitchen table and creates lines from it and um, hands me a rolled up dollar bill. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and like uh, 
the hippest rabbi you've ever met said, today you are a man. <laughs> and I proceeded to, and I proceeded Thanks, to, yeah. uh, <laughs> that is absolutely wonderful <laughs> to be, to be, to just be a, a little more serious for a second. I wanted to just start cause you know, you, you are a, maybe a rare example of someone who was a part of the counterculture, you know, back in the sixties. And in a sense, you've never not been part of the counterculture. There's been a, a, a motif and a thread right through your life to the present day. You know, I think that uh, people like Ed Sanders contributed to Cheetah and you in a sense have been part of that kind of network of like people like Ed Sanders, Paul, the late Paul Krasner, obviously, and, and other activists and former yippies and so forth. And that's been a very important part of your, your kind of your whole life and your work, hasn't it, Michael? Well, it's who I am. I mean, you know, I, you know, I was a troubled kid. And when the whole hippie thing happened, I went, ah, that's who I am. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, people misunderstand it because hippie, the word hippie is so, it's defined in too many ways. I mean, you know, it, to me, it's not some tie-dyed Halloween costume. It's a way of thinking. I mean, I didn't even really like the word hippie, but I use it for purposes of communication. But, you know, it was it was a way out of square world for people of my generation and, and yours you guys too yeah, yeah you know so it's who i am it's not it, it's not like you know in the late 50s early 60s college students would see how many kids they could cram into a, a phone booth or they would see how many you know goldfish a kid could eat or something. it's not a trend it's not the hula hoop it's who i am and it defines to this day it defines who i am it's why i may i'm still an ardent left-wing radical and yet i can't stand cancel culture because sure. to me you know freedom of speech is is part of who i am i mean the lampoon was considered the most offensive magazine in america for many years so you know for people to go around canceling other people because they don't like what they're saying is anathema to me sure yeah, these are diff these difficult times, aren't they? Really, because especially I, for, yeah. for old farts like us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we... Although I would argue that the whole notion of cancel culture is a slightly overblown. It's a kind of made up, in a way, made up thing. It's a right wing conspiracy in order to whip up a kind of anger about about something that isn't really happening in the way that people say it's happening. Yeah. So that's my take on yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, no, well, I, I'm I, interested I, in your take I, because. Hmm. I've noticed that you're younger than us. <laughs> he's, he's not. He's just been taking different drugs. He's actually he's actually older than Mark and me. <laughs> you know, and, can we, and can we have some of those drugs, please, Jasper? I was going to just say, if, uh, Jasper, if you can share those drugs with us. <laughs> oh, oh. oh, that's funny. You know, I don't want to get into a debate about cancel culture, but there are, sure. there are some things that have happened, you know, factually that it that just yeah. bother me and also the fact that i have to watch what i say i mean i'm supposed to watch what i say i generally don't but <laughs> I, I i stop now and and then i stop myself and i never used to stop myself and i don't want to have to stop myself you know i don't intend to offend anybody but um there's not well anyway this is a whole we yeah, I think it's a different. It's, it's another episode. Just, it's another. One of the interesting things. One of the interesting things about 
I don't. I mean, I've never read the National Lampoon. I don't know what kind of offensive humor, quote <laughs> unquote, offensive. it was. It was very, engaged in. Very, yeah. Sure, but but the, the interesting thing it, for me, <laughs> the interesting thing for me is that people will say stuff like, "Oh, you can't make jokes anymore," blah blah blah. Well, for me, it's actually I think jokes that punch down have ceased to be funny. Well, because they're not that funny, and jokes that punch up that are offensive to those that are above, they still work because of that power dynamic again and it, so that's that's yeah, my, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's a very good angle good, on good argument yeah. we'll, should we leave the argument there, Let's leave it there. I, no, think we, <laughs> I, I understand but let me just say one last thing the, th- the <laughs> credo at the national lampoon was punch everybody without, <laughs> uh, you know punch sideways right make, make no distinctions hurl fists and that was in every our, direction exactly and that was our defense against critics is that well right. we're, we're punching hippies too and we are hippies yeah so, anyway yeah. sorry exactly. well exactly exactly michael before you yourself worked at lampoon in the 80s and and had a, a column you were yourself a musician. I mean, you are yourself a musician. I believe there were a couple of early bands, Charlie Brown and the Peanuts, and I even better, Lawrence and the Arabians, <laughs> the all-Jewish Lawrence and the Arabians. Um, what, what, what kind of groups were they? Were, were they like bar band types? <laughs> well, Charlie Brown and the Peanuts was just my... High school you know, band. 12, 12 year old. No, even... Okay. Okay. Younger. Lawrence and the Arabians was my high school band. And that was because we, we just thought it was funny. It was, a, it was a satire of 50s group names. And since we were all Jewish, we thought Lawrence and the Arabians was funny. Plus, our keyboardist <laughs> was named Lawrence. So. And then I had a band called the Wipeout Gang, which I got from the liner notes of Highway 61. All right. And then in 1975, I started Slewfoot. I, I got into country music heavily, starting in the late 60s, but full speed by the early 70s. I started disliking where rock was going in the early 70s. And for the same reason that a lot of people, you know, our peers created punk rock, I got into country music for those same reasons. Rock started to seem corporate and sterile and and I wanted something soulful. And yeah. I, I fell in love with country music. Yeah. But I have a question for you. How does an, if I've got my facts right here, Michael, how does an 11 year old Jewish New Yorker start listening to WWVA out of Wheeling, West Virginia, rather in the way that Mark and I would have been listening to John Peel? How, how did that happen? <laughs> it's because of the technology of transistor radios. Right. And the fact that they came with an earplug, a single earplug. And mm-hmm. when the the rents, a.k.a. the parents, were in, in the bedroom <laughs> and I was supposed to be sleeping, I was under the covers with the head, the earphone in my ear checking out the AM dial. Now, WWVA was 50,000 watts. So that right. even though it came out of Wheeling, West Virginia, and I was in New York City, after midnight where the signals cleared up, I could get it. And it was hardcore country music, and I fell in love with it. And this is before Graham Parsons or Sweetheart of the Rodeo or any of that stuff. Wow, that is amazing. But how, yeah. how did the how did the? I mean, country music politically is broadly sort of for the working man, but in most other respects, pretty reactionary. How did country music figure with against your own personal politics? 
you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. that. <laughs> obviously, obviously, I saw the irony in it. I wasn't. Right. It, it didn't escape me. But it was helped along by Graham and and the Birds sure. and then the Burrito Brothers and then Dylan. You know, Rolling Stone actually started writing about Flatten Scruggs and Johnny Cash. Sure. I knew Ca- Cash and Dylan were friends, and then they did Nashville Skyline. There was, you know, the Beatles did country songs. Country music was not as alien as it, you know, may seem. It, right. It was around. Plus, the magazine that I loved the most back then was Hit Parader, and they covered country music. Yeah, right. So I, I knew all the names, you know, even if I didn't know all yes. the music yet. Well, that brings us to to Kinky Friedman, one of the more extraordinary country figures <laughs> to emerge in. A, in a, one of the pieces we're running on the homepage by you, Michael, is the splendidly titled I Was a Texas Jew Boy from, <laughs> from, from the LA see, Week Jasper? in July 2010. Do you see Jasper? <laughs> That's what <laughs> Jasper will. He'll probably cut that out from the episode. But that's what you called it. You wrote that about yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's that's, that's good. No, that's that? good. And it's a. It's just a great little memoir of of meeting Kinky uh, in 1973 when Sold Amer- No, I think you met him later. But Sold American came out in 1973, and you saw Kinky and the Texas Jew Boys uh, upstairs at Max's in New York City. So I mean, just recreate that moment i mean you must did you was it just like oh my god you had did you know who he was already when you went to see him yeah there he had gotten a lot of press and of course the new york papers picked him up because new york has a huge jewish community you know you, you asked me how did i reconcile the reactionary politics of country music with my own left-wing politics well kinky was like a dream come true he was like lenny right, bruce exactly, exactly. It was Lenny Bruce and Hank Williams in one package. And so, you know, I went every night when he played Max's, he was there for like three or four nights. I went every night and every show and, you know, became a fan. And then in 1977, I was playing the Lone Star Cafe in New York, where Kinky also played. And we happened to find ourselves sitting at the same table. I had never met him. And uh, we exchanged some Irving that night. I should probably explain what Irving is. Uh, Irving Berlin wrote the song White Christmas. <laughs> yeah, say no more. Say no more. <laughs> so really, so, that was a, a common, common slang for cocaine. No, it was a kinkyism at that time. Or no, just, it was a kinkyism. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> And uh, so we shared some Irving and, uh, you know, uh, while we no longer share Irving, we share a friendship now for 45 or whatever it is years. That's great. Uh, And I was in his band. I I joined his band after that. And I've been playing with him since, ever since. making Jews like Jesus anymore. They don't turn the other cheek the way they've done before. And then you formed your own, or before, sorry, I beg your pardon, before you became a quote-unquote Texas Jew boy. Am I allowed to say that, Jasper? I think in (laughs) in the, as humor, I think we can say it, no offense intended to anybody, but you formed your own country band in New York City, Slewfoot, 
And there's actually a quote from a piece that Robert Duncan wrote for Cream in November 77. So he's rounding up all the CBGB's bands. Plus, Slewfoot are in there, obviously. Robert writes, though he would never claim it, Michael Simmons is country punk. (laughs) And if you think about it, real country is about as punk as you can get. He's only 22, so he's well within the age range. And his sort of theme song, or at least the number that gets all the country punks in the audience up and screaming, is Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother, which is certainly a country (laughs) punk anthem, if ever there was one. So tell us a little bit about Slewfoot. Well, I, by the way, I should credit Ray Wiley Hubbard wrote that song. I just happened to okay. perform it. Good. Yeah. Bit of education there for us. You know, so I wanted to start a country, a, a pure country band after having bands that had kind of mixed, blended musics. So I founded Slewfoot in 1975, and we went through a couple of changes. We, we, we turned into a Western swing band, and then we were rehearsing one day in late 76, I think it was, and we were sitting at a bar having a beer on a break, and I heard Springsteen on the radio, and, you know, I thought, I want to play rock and roll again. But I didn't want to stop playing country music, and I I, I thought, what if we played the country music we're playing but cranked up the amps and quickened the tempos and, and, Mm. you know, blended rock and roll and 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 hardcore country music not country rock not you know like fire firefall or something i like firefall god forbid okay so (laughs) no i don't it's fine i don't care but you know i wanted something more that was both authentic and that rocked like a motherfucker at the same time and that's when we did that musically and the rock critics at this bar called the bells of hell in the village where we were regulars started screaming country punk, country punk. And that was Bob Duncan and uh, Billy Altman, Nick Tashas, Lester Bangs, John Morthland, the whole, all the cream writers who lived in New York would hang out at this one bar where we played. And so they started writing about us. You know, the story that I, that I've rarely told uh, you're getting an exclusive here guys in late summer, <laughs> early autumn, 77, George Jones was scheduled to play the bottom line, which was the the biggest rock club in New York at the time. Yeah. And we all went to, I went with Bob and, and Billy and Nick and Lester and everybody to the Epic records pre gig party and there was whispering about George isn't going to show. George isn't going to show. As, as you know, he, they used to call him No Show Jones. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we got down on the bottom line, and the place was packed with the entire New York record industry and the press and country music fans and hippies and everybody. And the word is out. You know, George ain't showing. But his bus was outside, and the Jones boys were there. So this was not my idea. But Billy. Altman and Duncan and Lester and Nick and and the whole gang went to Alan Pepper, who owned the bottom line. And they said, we got this kid here who knows every George Jones song recorded. (laughs) And he goes, okay. And so they bring me into the Jones boys, the name of the band, the Jones boys bus. 
and they the band hands me a guitar and they and they and I sing window up above and white lightning and a few others and I go okay you have the job so I filled in for George Jones and I believe it was early September 1977 I did the entire set with all of New York sitting there watching me <laughs> this is fantastic I never told this story I don't That's, think I've told this that story is amazing. yeah that's an yeah, incredible so, story not to have told. Yeah. My God, Michael. I know. I, 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 I once worked with a bass player, a guy <laughs> called Bob Ray, who was a Nashville bass player, who was booked to do an album with George Jones. And for two months, they'd check into the studio every day, get their union card stamped, and then go home because George never turned up. <laughs> two months. <laughs> no that's show, Jones. Yeah, yeah. No, show no show Jones. Jones. Yeah, yeah. Rival great, only great, by great, great singer, great great singer. Oh, I mean, oh. one of our favorites. Yeah, um, supposedly Lucy. Sinatra uh, adored George yeah. Jones. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Yeah. Actually, you know, the, the, the absolutely no, that really doesn't surprise me. It's just yeah. fantastic. Thank you. Here's a song written by my good buddy Rock and Rob Stoner about one of our favorite mutual subjects, getting drunk, ladies and gentlemen. A song entitled "Instant Forget." One, two, three. <laughs> I found her suitcases packed up under the bed. I guess when we had that fight last night, you must have been every word that you said. Let's talk about writing. So you have this column on Lampoon, Drinking Tips and Other War Stories, I believe it was called. I don't know how long that lasted, Michael. I don't know how much of it was about music. We should try and get some of that on on rocks back pages if we can oh, but, um, okay. <laughs> well i mean I, anything that's that's kind of you know musical in in sort of theme it would be really cool to to have those on rbp so my question is when did you move to la and when did you start writing about music in earnest well i, I i've been writing about music my whole life i started yeah, okay. an underground newspaper in 1969 or 70 i was a teenager called paper tiger and then I, in the 70s, while I was playing music, I wrote for Country Music Magazine. Do you remember a guy named Patrick? Carr? Yeah, Patrick Carr. I, yeah. I was friends with him, and he hired me to write reviews for Country Music Magazine. I remember panning the soundtrack to the, Robert Altman's movie, the Na- uh, uh, Nashville. I love mm-hmm. the movie, but I hated the music. But yes. I, I revere Altman, but that's another story. Anyway, so... I played music, and then I did the Lampoon thing, and then I was a music supervisor for films. And in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, I started writing for the LA Weekly, not as a music writer, as a reporter, actually, at first. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, in fact, I won a, the LA Press Club Award for uh, an expose I did about ho- the Hollywood Vice Squad. <laughs> I thought they were going to kill me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Messing with the wrong people there. <laughs> I, I actually said to the lieutenant who was in charge of the investigation that I was unearthed, and I said, should I leave town? He said, no longer than a year. Um, <laughs> Bloody hell. Oh my. Yeah. James Elroy, here we come. Exactly, yeah. And then, so I was at the Weekly, and I became friends with the music editor, and I started writing about music. And then that became the main focus. And I was still working as a musician. And then in the late, mid to late 80s, I began writing for Mojo. Uh, 90s. Aughts. 
The oh the Orties or the yeah, yeah. two thousand eight. Sorry, mid noughties, mid noughties. Yeah, exactly. I actually yeah. wanted to. I wanted to just read out. So this is partly for Mark's benefit because he is our resident <laughs> deadhead. Really? Yeah. <laughs> One of the pieces we have this great we have this great review of the So Many Roads box set that you wrote for the LA Weekly in April two thousand. One more negative remark about hippies or the Grateful Dead, and you punk rock. Bullies will have petunias shoved down your throat. Yay, though I'm a full-blooded hippie American and original citizen of Woodstock Nation, I shall no longer take guff from the black-clad nihilists who've heaped scorn on my tie-dyed sisters and brothers ever since that faux-angry young man changed his name from Leiden to Rotten and back. <laughs> Fuck you, punks. <laughs> <laughs> right on, that's, right on. That is brilliant. Oh, that's, that's I so don't good. think Pringle could have put it any better. So um, I, I just thought I'd read that out and just—I mean, you, you're a joy to read. I, I just, yes, uh, really, absolutely. you are. I mean, I just, also just this wonderful little, uh, just a few lines from um, this Dylan piece because the other, another big piece with is that wonderful celebration of Dylan's life. At his, on his 70th birthday when you talk to Kinky and Al Cooper and others about Bob. The intro includes this, these, these sentences. Dylan claimed he'd run away from home 15 times, and it was obvious to me that if I was to wander in his boot heels, I'd need to do the same. I spent five hours roaming around Greenwich Village in August 1967, only to be talked home by a kindly commune leader. The farewell <laughs> note to my parents I'd left on my bed was not well received when I returned. Uh, I just said that, that may be what you referred to earlier as running away it from was. home. I think. Okay, well, it's a, it's a very sweet story. I know you are like, you've you described yourself as Mojo's resident Dylanologist or house Dylanologist. So just tell us a little bit about Dylan and how he fits into the scenes of your life and his relationships with the counterculture and the, and the whole kind of post-beatnik world of Neil. <laughs> Tell us about Dylan, your 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 passion for Bob. In a short paragraph or less, or uh... yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sum it up for us in <laughs> like you know, you got you got four you got sentences. Seconds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could write a book about what you I just said. Well, then you should. You should write a book. Your your it's line of notes discussed. are wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You know, again, troubled kid, nineteen sixty five. Make a long story short, I get bringing it all back home, and I hear it's all right, Ma, and I go, yeah, yeah, you know. no words, yeah. <laughs> and then that summer, sitting in a diner with my father and my siblings, and there's a song on the jukebox that I hadn't heard yet. It had just come out called "Like a Rolling Stone" by Bob Dylan. Now I knew Dylan's work. This is summer of '65, so but I didn't know the song. And I didn't know what it meant, like a Rolling Stone. Was this about the Rolling Stones? I didn't know the Muddy Waters reference. So I put, you know, the nickel in the jukebox for which you would get 10 songs back then. And, you know, you hear that, what I refer to as that gunshot. Yeah. It's a, it's a snare drum, but to me yeah. it was like a gunshot. And it was like all the doors of consciousness were kicked open. It was like doing acid for the first time. And I realized that there was this whole world that would save me from the life I, you know, I, that I didn't want to live. 
you know, and Dylan is largely responsible for that. It's, you know, given the fact that I'm one of hundreds of millions of people who feel this way has got to be a heavy weight on a man's shoulders. But the cat has delivered now for 60 years. Michael, how did you come to? How did they come to ask you to write the first set of liner notes? How did that come about? I had written a piece for Mojo about. First of all, I knew people who worked in the Dylan office, but um, I had written a, a piece for Mojo about Dylan in 1970. So when they were working on the another self portrait, which covered that year. You know, it covered self-portrait and and New Morning. The powers that be asked me to, if I would write liner notes, and I said, yes, I would love to. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I, I love those liner notes, and I love that box. I, I love a lot of that music. I do too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember talking to um, Al Cooper about um, New Morning and um, Sign on the Window. And we, we both just were in kind of raptures about that that particular song. So that was a, that was a great... That was a great piece of work in that in that box, which I have sitting down here. Actually, you know what's great on that is is Al's. Well, Al did that. Those wonderful arrangements that weren't initially used on "Sign on the Window" and uh, and "New Morning," and he had in "New Morning" he had those great kind of Stax Volt horns, uh, which weren't released until the uh, until the box the box yeah. and yeah. I told people who worked for Dylan, they should have released that as a single. And that 40 years later or whatever it was, New Morning could have been a hit with those, yeah. that big, those big R&B horns. Yeah. Uh, it's so powerful. So happy just to see a smile Underneath the sky blue On this new The last of the pieces I want to just mention actually takes us back to Cheetah and the conversation we're having about Cheetah magazine, because you have talked about uh, Tom Nolan's great piece about Van Dyke Parks from 1967. We only have two Cheetah pieces on RBP, and they're both by Tom, who I've met and, and interviewed and is another of my favorite writers. Great writer, We need to, we need to get more yeah. Cheetah. I don't know how we, we, we'll have to talk about that. Absolutely. You might, you might be able to help us with that. But, but so Tom wrote this great piece about Van Dyke. And you've obviously been a friend of Van Dyke's for a long time. It's a really nice piece called Van Dyke Parks Keeps on Cycling, from, which actually was published on Huffington Post in March 2013. Yeah, you just talk about the sort of, yeah, the kind of legend of Van Dyke Parks. So we thought it would be um, timely to, to feature an audio interview with Van Dyke, which Mark is now going to tell us about. Yeah, this is uh, John Tobler in uh, November 73 in Los Angeles, interviewing the great Van Dyke Parks. He starts off talking about the South and what the South means and him being a Southerner and so on. So let's have a listen to this clip, Jasper. (laughs) 
I am a son of the South. I'm not a Yankee. I'm a rebel. And, and I think that you learn when you go through the South that, that they've taken the rap for the North. The North is uh, the industrial uh, center, the uh, and, and they've gotten all the great publicity for being tar and non-racist and have developed the publicity from the profits they took from the uh, the agrarian South. And uh, and I feel sorry for Southerners. You know, there's a naivety there that that, that, um, that I don't think that you have to assume you can relate to and then em- and embellish on and amplify. But there's a decency among people. In, for example, Nashville, you find this... this there's no connection with the world. There's no global feeling. There's no, no late news, no, no late television shows, no late, late movie, no, no concern with Watergate. Like a present hereafter, the warm sound of laughter as we dance to the dead of Queen Wars. I love that. I mean... Partly because it reminds me a bit of Randy Newman's Rednecks and uh, that whole album. Yeah, you it's really just... wonder whether whether like uh, a conversation that Randy ha- might have had with Van Dyke uh, almost prompted that song. Well, indeed, because in fact, Randy Newman gets mentioned a great deal in this interview that Van Dyke takes some credit for actually introducing Randy to Warner Brothers and actually getting his recording career going. He talks about Los Angeles and the California experience. At one point, Lowell George actually enters. We'll play a clip at the end of the show of him being introduced to Van Dyke Parks, even though they were writing songs together at the time, hilariously. <laughs> talks about being a, a, a kid acting in TV and movies and coming out to L.A. and being a, basically a, a child actor. Mm. Talks about his early experiences, musical experiences in L.A., playing in bands, starting to get into doing sessions. He talks about surfing. He was very into surfing and the Beach Boys, obviously. And uh, he talks about Song Cycle. Let's have a listen to this clip. This is Song Cycle and LSD. But it was not a classifiable album. So I didn't address myself to anyone that I could think of. I was trying to express myself. But I, I had to face it. I was an LSD casualty, and I don't mind saying so. I took uh, just a lot of hallucinogenic drugs when I lived in California, and uh, my parents know that much. <laughs> I love it. my parents know that much, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, assume, I assume his parents are still alive when this conversation is taking place, so they won't be too Probably. horrified by him yeah. sort of saying this yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 um, it's, yeah. It's, it's terrific. He talks very much about the whole Warner Brothers, Lenny Waronka, Randy Newman, Ry Cooder's scene, that whole sort of the evolution of Warners and Reprise into the sort of the great labels they b- became. Sessions he played, talks quite extensively about Brian Wilson, the smile recordings talks about making discover America, which is one of two kind of Calypso, essentially Calypso albums that he, he did and horrendous lawsuit regarding the musicians that he had to tolerate, put up with afterwards. 
talks lovingly about Lowell George, who is either in the room or has just left. We aren't quite certain. I don't know if Barney's got an opinion on that. I, I think he uh, comes um, in and then and then goes and sits next door yeah, and then I gets don't... bored waiting because, of course, Van Dyke never shuts up. I mean, he really... <laughs> and, it, and so Lowell just comes back in and, yeah, and, yeah. Ha- and, and it's, it's very funny. And I, just, I, I, yeah, no, so he, he basically talks hugely fondly about Lowell George. I mean, almost worshipful about Lowell George, which, I mean, certainly Barney and I are huge Little Feet fans, and so this this sort of speaks. And, and, and Michael is and raising Michael his hand. Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's curious about Van Dyke Parks is I love hearing him talk, and he's got the most elaborate language you can imagine. And the one problem with that is that sometimes he talks complete horseshit, but it's very, very, very convincing because his language is so marvellous. So you've got <laughs> this guy mellifluously saying things which you sort of then you listen to back afterwards. You think, did he really mean that? So there's a, there's a few sort of moments like that in this interview. Anyway, it's great. It's great. It's, it's over two hours long. There's a lot of Van Dyke for you subscribers to listen to. Fantastic. I mean, just to put it in context, I mean, just to listen to Van Dyke talking in 1973 is extraordinary. And um, this this mm. turned into an entire issue, this interview, of Hot Wax magazine that John Tobler wrote for. I think because because I don't think Van I don't think John could have really anticipated what it was going to be like to interview Van Dyke Parks. <laughs> I know my Michael will know what I'm talking about. I mean, so he ended up with just so much stuff that he actually turned, it just became an entire issue of of hot wax. I wanted to ask you, Michael, when you first crossed Van Dyke's singular path. As a fan or as a friend? Just, just, well, when, when, as, as a, well, as a friend, really, when, when you first met him and where that was with LA, Uh, probably at McCabe's or something. Yeah, I, I don't know. Oh, oh, I actually I do know. It was in the uh, mid, uh, mid uh, late seventies. He was playing with Kinky. He was sitting oh. in with Kinky. Oh. Uh, he and Kinky go way back. Right. And there was a gig at the Bottom Line, and and Van Dyke sat in on piano, and that's when I met him. So it was late seventies. And did you reconnect with him when you moved? To the yeah. West Coast. Yeah, yeah, especially when I started writing because I would need him for interviews or I'd want to write about him or something. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. already had that connection. So, you know, we became really close. You know, the thing I want to say about Van Dyke, that little section where he's talking about Southerners, it shows a side of Van Dyke. You know, Van Dyke is, like me, a hard leftist politically. But it shows Van Dyke's capacity for empathy. Yeah. That he can talk about Southerners that way. You're not going to find a whole lot of people on the left currently and with and somewhat understandably given Trump and MAGA and all that stuff, talking mm. about Southerners with that kind of empathy and compassion. But Van Dyke is an incredibly singular, you know, just a special guy. One of the biggest hearts I've ever of anybody I've ever known. And I've known some big-hearted folks. Uh, Van Dyke is extraordinary. Fantastic. One of the most brilliant minds in, you know, all of American popular music, isn't he? I mean, and you sit down and turn the tape recorder on, and then it just is, it can be hours of really fascinating (laughs) stuff. And generosity, I mean, you're absolutely right. First time I ever interviewed him, he was so sweet. He gave me this incredibly heavy tome called the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture that must have cost like $100 and insisted 
did I take it back to England with me? I mean, it was, I, I was just flabbergasted, really. Did you ever read it? Well, it's an encyclopedia, so you don't really read it from... Okay. From sorts of gold to cover, <laughs> but it's fasc- it's fascinating. I think sure. Patrick Carr is actually one of the contributors to it. Michael, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's in North. I mean, it's that yeah. thick. Yeah, it's that thick. Yeah, fantastic book. But I mean, Van Dyke is. It's almost like his work with others is. It, it maybe what puts him in the kind of history books beyond his own very eccentric acquired taste albums. I don't know what you feel. I mean, you you. Interestingly, in this piece, Michael, you say you talk about Song Cycle, which was the album that Warner's Bankroll came out. This is late 67 or early 68. You say the Beatles and Dylan had smashed all the conventions of pop music and were the toppermost of the poppermost. Why not Van Dyke Parks? For all the media yap about the rock revolution, neither album nor single which was Donovan's Colours, fit into commercial radio's idea of what rock music should sound like. It was too eclectic, too intelligent. Yes, Virginia, too intelligent was a very real (laughs) concept then, as now in the United (laughs) States of America. And neither album nor single in any way rocked R-A-W-K-E-D. So for the most part, the, the hippie hordes never got to hear Song Cycle and it sold bupkis. How does it stand up for you now, Michael? Song cycle. Oh, I think it's a, I think it's a work of genius. And Donovan's Colors, which was first released as a single under a pseudonym, George Washington Brown. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Um, is one of the greatest pieces of American pop music ever recorded. I several years ago. How do I put this? I had to stop taking a certain medication. Heavy pregnant pause. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it took about a month to get off of this medication. (laughs) (laughs) And the only medication for the medication was the medication, but I couldn't take the medication because I'd stopped taking the medication. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so for a month, I listened to Donovan's Colors on repeat. Donovan's Colors by Van Dyke Parks, a cover of the Donovan song Colors. Uh, that is the color of my true love fair in the morning. And it's just an extraordinary piece of music, an extraordinary arrangement. It's magical. It, it, talk about something that kicks open doors of consciousness. That record is an example of something like that there's only one van dyke parks i mean i i I kind of agree and i i think the fact that he's still working and still writing for example incredible string charts for you know like rufus wainwright and joanna newsom that remarkable album which i think is pronounced east w it's just ys isn't it and van dyke essentially is well, he's all over that record. The whole thing is essentially a collaboration with Van Dyke Parks. And it's just dizzyingly brilliant, you know. I absolutely adore the man. One thing interesting about this interview is that he's actually in a pretty bad place. You know, he, he he's marvellously articulate and all that, but every now and again, this sort of 
sort of darkness sort of pokes through in what he's talking about. And I was reading, he was about to start recording Clang of the Yankee Reaper. Right. I went to him, so the, the wiki article. It says, apparently it was, he describes this as the nadir of his entire life. Psychologically, I was in a terrible state. I was despairing. My best friend had just died. My roommate, he's my roommate. We scattered his ashes at sea and they blew back in our faces. A terrible, terrible insult. I was grieving. I'd just been divorced. I'd just left Warner Brothers in disgust. You know, what can I say? Lost my job, the truck blew up, my dog died. Which is, you know, um, and he talks in in this interview about how little money he's got. He's got this big debt to Warner Brothers. He's not really getting any work at all. He's turning stuff down, you know, sort of various like backroom record company jobs and so on and so forth. But it is interesting. And we tend to look on him from this distance and look, you know, wasn't it wonderful? He'd done all this stuff with Brown Wilson and so on and so forth. And actually life was, life was tough for Van Dyke Parks in the mid seventies. That is really interesting because, because Mike will probably agree. I mean, it's rare to find Van Dyke in a, in a sort of depressed state. He's, he's one of the sort of least depressed people I've ever met, but there's no life uh, without, some some kind of low moments he's a, you know he's a man of incredible depth so mm. you're not going to have that kind of depth without darkness sure as yeah. well sure mm. yeah i find it fascinating just how you know how eclectic the stuff that he did was like he he, was, he owned one of the first moog synthesizers he worked with the japanese band happy end and harumi hosono and, and like it recently has worked with skrillex and it's just like <laughs> yes <laughs> what? Yeah. what yes you know and i just i love that i think that's that really speaks to what what you guys are saying about about his depth and and his range and and just kind of an enthusiasm for music of all kinds. I also love the fact that he's lived most of his adult life in Los Angeles and still has the most wonderful Mississippi accent he can yeah, yeah, describe. Yeah. You know, he he's hung on to that. Yes, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I, I, I you're mentioning Skrillex. Just reminds me, that I was flown to Oslo to interview Van Dyke as part of the Belam Festival, and what a privilege that was. And I walked into the little theater room and he came up to me and said uh, oh my god last time i saw you you were a brunette <laughs> <laughs> and, and and he had just done this work with skrillex so we, we talked about that but he was just such a i mean a joy to interview with a little audience there he was so funny and yeah touching it was lovely 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 <laughs> I think at this point we should probably turn our attention, Mark, to the pieces that you, you, you've added that you've enjoyed most in the last couple of weeks. And Michael, if there's something that, that sort of you know inspires you to comment, don't hesitate to kind of jump in, or, you know, or maybe just like raise your hand to indicate I have something important to say about this. <laughs> um, Marco, over to you. Yeah, Maureen Cleave interviewing Nina Simone for the Evening Standard in 1965. This is just fantastic Ooh. stuff. I mean, I've been raving the last few podcasts. Maureen Cleave has been on board for a while, but we actually kind of laid our hands on her writing relatively recently, and she recently died, sadly. Uh, this interview, yeah. When I was three, a piano came into the house. It was as though I'd been waiting for it all my life. Just love that. I love the, yeah. you know, this, this, this sense of that. Honey, do you believe in miracles? I believe in them. You have to believe in miracles when you can play the piano when you are three. 
It's such a brilliant pianist as well, isn't she? Absolutely. And then she talks about getting into being a kind of nightclub singer. She says, it was a dive, but I didn't know that. I'd never been in a nightclub in my life. I'd never had a drink in my life. I felt wicked. And then she says, I hate those snotty nightclubs with passion. The rich people hovering over you and making you sing their silly requests. Well, I mean, we can absolutely see, see that. You can you see know. that, can't you? Yeah. yeah my God. I'd been looked down all my life for being coloured. Now it had the added stigma of show business. It's great. It's, I mean, Maureen Cleves, she has these single-page interviews in, in the Evening Standard in the mid-60s, and they are all really good. This is really good music writing. Yes. You know, everyone sort of thinks that music writing was invented in 1967. Well, it really, really wasn't, you know. Yeah. You know what the secret is, and you guys, you know, running Rock's Back Pages and being vets yourself – know this the secret is to listen yeah uh, i know it sounds incredibly simplistic but you guys know that moment when you're listening to uh, a musician or whoever talk and they say something and the light a light bulb goes off over your head and you go ah i, I can use mm -hmm. that and yeah. th that's an example you know nina simone just these little gems yeah you know when to grab them and hold uh, on to them and use them. Absolutely. And Maureen Cleave is absolutely a past master of that. Uh, San Francisco Examiner, 1970s, Philip Elwood reviewing Linda Ronstadt, live appearance Linda Ronstadt in San Francisco. And he says, luscious, luscious Linda, who prefers well-vented dresses, sings as strong as anyone I know of in popular music. In fact, she always has from the Stone Pony days on. She's going to explode all over the entertainment world one of these days. I mean, I love that partly because he's absolutely spot on. She was about to explode all over the entertainment world. But also that writing, it's, it's of its period. It's, it's a man writing about a woman singer in 1970. And so it's luscious Linda who prefers well-vented dresses. And hence Try we find ourselves, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're hence find ourselves back in the world of cancel culture. Try to, <laughs> yeah. Try to say that today and you will be crucified. Yeah, well, I <laughs> Funny enough, I posted that on our Facebook page. And you were crucified. Well, there was, there was a couple of distinctly raised eyebrows, put it this way, at which point you have to point out, this is what people wrote like in 1970. You know, I mean, <sighs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, moving yeah. swiftly on. Uh, Mick Jagger on his, two, on his guitarist to Lillian Roxon, New York Sunday News, 1973. I've tried chasing them around the stage, but they don't take any notice of me. I don't think I even noticed if I took my trousers off. They'd just stand there. So that's Mick on Keith. And that, that would be uh, Mick Taylor in that, that, that point in 1973. Right, last from last week is Mike John reviewing the band's Northern Light Southern Cross for High Fidelity in 1976. He says, This recording is easily the band's best since music from Big Pink was issued in 1968. And since the latter may be considered one of the top 10 LPs ever made by a rock group, the arrival of Northern Lights Southern Cross is an important event indeed. Uh, Barney, I think you'd have something to say about the best, the band's best since 
Well, yeah, I I wouldn't have said it was the the best since Music from Big Pink, obviously, but it was surprisingly good after, uh, well, particularly following after Kahoot had been the previous studio album. Am I right? Yeah. And I thought Northern Lights was really good. Do you have an opinion on Northern Lights, Michael? I think it's a great album. Um, Yeah. What it was was, you know, Big Pink is in a category of its own. The second album, the so-called Brown album, is in a category of its own. Yeah, yeah. Stage Fright, I think, is is underrated. I love Stage Fright. I agree. I agree. Cahoots was... Poor. You know, yeah, was not a great album. And then they did stuff. I loved Rock of Ages. Yeah, but yeah. It wasn't it wasn't new material. It was live. Mm-hmm. And then they did the... Uh, the covers album, uh, Moondog Matinee. And again, great. You know, I loved it or good. And, but again, not new material. So finally, uh, a really strong class of songs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really. I'd say exactly the same. I remember um, our, our colleague, Rockstar Pages colleague, Martin Collier, and I, who were big band oh, fans. Say uh, hi uh, to Martin for uh, me. We, 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 we will. <laughs> we were big band fans. And so when this came out, it was like, this sense of relief, this is a return to form. That Robbie Robertson had just rediscovered his songwriting mojo. That the is is beautifully played and produced and all that sort of stuff. So a great swan song. Then they made that really dreadful Islands record afterwards. That was, was that was the ultimate just contract fulfiller, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I actually like parts dr- of Islands, but um... do you? Okay, okay. Again, another episode, I think. I mean, Acadian Driftwood may be almost their greatest song, I think. You know, it's just so heart-wrenching and beautiful. Acadian Driftwood, gypsy tailwind, they call my home, the land of snow. What's next, Mark? Uh, right, that's last week. This week, Joni Mitchell to Lon Goddard, Record Mirror, 1970. She was, I believe, in the country for the Isle of Wight Festival, and she did the rounds of the British music press. So we got like three contemporaneous interviews with her from Melody Maker and New Musical Express, and this one, Record Mirror. And she says, I need time to rest up. As a woman, I need time to get to know my kitchen and home again. <laughs> I think that has to be cancelled as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is irresistible. This is great. She's just, you know, asked about radicalism, political radicalism. She says, we all want peace. We don't all have to demonstrate. You don't have to go to church to look for Christ, which is a sort of, you know, reasonably thoughtful thing. To Typically s- sort of gnomic Joni gnomic pronouncement. Thing. Well, I mean, you know, you know I mean, basically, <laughs> basically you can agree, you can agree with the protesters without doing protesting yourself. It's, it's sort of a cop out actually. Um, yeah. I'm afraid you know. Mike, I don't know. What do you, what do you make of that, Michael? As an, as an activist, she's staying uh, in her kitchen looking for Christ. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, you know, I mean, I'm an activist and, you know, I have been my whole life, but um, I don't expect musicians to be activists. Sure, you know, if they are sure, great, no. but if they're not, it's that's fine. Yeah, are you yeah. Johnny Fan? Yeah, yeah. Moving swiftly on, 1975, Ed Jones reviewing what was actually Motorhead's debut show at the Roundhouse, this Melody Maker. Uh, the, the subhead is Holes in the Motorhead. And it's, it's, this line is, you know, Larry Wallace, who enjoys the celebrity of having been a founding member of the Pink Fairies, favours a guitar technique which makes the average urban motorway snarl-up sound like Mozart 
alternating the world's three most lifeless blues licks with fuzz and volume at maximum, tastefully avoiding any potentially confusing variations in tone and key. I love this because <laughs> I've heard about this because I saw their third, I think their third ever show, which would be literally months later, when they supported Blois to Cult at Hammersmith Odeon. What a bill. They were dreadful. But the, the extraordinary thing is, I remember them. I have virtually no memory of Blue Oyster Cult from that night. You know, mm. Blue Oyster Cult were a functional sort of metal band with pretensions towards literacy, while Motorhead were just hilarious. I mean, Larry Wallace was trying to tune his guitar up with his fuzz box on, which is an impossibility. <laughs> and the whole, the whole audience are chanting, up, up, down, down. <laughs> It was absolutely brilliant. And they, they were roundly slagged off all round. That version of Motorhead fell to pieces very, very rapidly afterwards. And then he got Fast Eddie, whatever his name is, and Filthy Animal, whatever his name is. And, and they became a brilliant band. I mean, just, yes. just a fantastic band. Kind of, you know, but, but I really remember that, that night at Hammersmith Odeons watching Motorhead just being so hopeless. It was just marvellous. <laughs> Michael, talking of Blue Oyster Cult, did you ever know the late Sandy Pearlman? Yeah, well, Sandy and Bob Duncan were very close friends. Oh, right. Okay. And Meltzer. Uh, you know, it was that whole crowd. Yeah. Yeah, so I knew Sandy. Love to get Sandy's yeah. stuff on, on Rock's Back Pages. I mean, maybe we could have another, a conversation about you know that what? at some point. Talk to Bob Duncan. Okay. Well, Bob is actually going to join us on the podcast in two or three months when we're going to be remembering Lester Bangs. 40 years after his death. Oh, so. I've got a great Lester story, if you want to <laughs> Do you have time? How, how long is it? Do you know roughly how, how long it is? I don't know. <laughs> tell, tell it. Tell okay. it. Go tell it on the mountain. I don't know how great a story it is, but you can tell me. So uh, I'm up all night. I've been up for three days on Dexedrine. Whites, you know, weed, whites, yeah, yeah, and yeah. wine. And um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd been gigging at the other end in New York, and the club the other end. And so I go down to the Bells of Hell where all the rock critics hung out. And Lester's there and he says, you got anything, man? I said, yeah. So I gave him some speed. So around five, six in the morning when the bar closed, <laughs> Lester says, I got to write something for Cream, but do you want to come over and hang? And Lester lived on 14th Street and 6th Avenue above a Chinese restaurant called Gum Joy. Same building as Bob Duncan and his wife, Ronnie Hoffman, lived in. So I go up there, and Lester's sitting at his typewriter, and he's reviewing the band Suicide for Cream. And I'm lying on Lester's bed, and I'm chain-smoking cigarettes. You know, it's like 8 in the morning. And he's listening to Suicide, and he's typing away, and it's going round and round. He's turning the record over and turning the record over. And it's like two hours of Suicide, this one record of Suicide. And I've been up for three (laughs) days, and it's like, hammering at my head and finally i go lester can you play something other than suicide please and he goes, <laughs> oh yes oh man i'm so sorry man yeah i should have thought that you were i forgot you were you were sitting here and blah, 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 blah. and so he goes to the record player and he takes suicide off the turntable and he takes another record out of the sleeve and he puts on We've only just begun the carpenters. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and he puts on metal machine music or something. <laughs> <laughs>
That's fantastic. Okay, uh, the last thing from this week, which is going, which is for the technical people here amongst our listeners, it's Lindsay Buckingham, Fleetwood Mac, talking to Sam Sutherland about the making of the album after Tusk, whatever that was called, Mirage, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, And he says, this is from 1982, and digital recording had just come in. It was a pretty new thing. He says, you can make a two-track copy of the mix and a digital copy, a, B, A, B them, and in a really sterile controlled circumstances, hear quite a difference. But the question is, is that difference really aesthetically preferable? I don't think it is. I think you always need a little of the softening you get on a two-track analog master as a buffer between the two-inch master tape and the disc. Very interesting, because this is a guy very alone identifying the, the very issues that a lot of us have had subsequently had with the sound of digital music. Correct. And which leads to the current vinyl revival, which is going on so widespread these days. I mean, I often misplaced. I think actually now you can really make brilliant sounding records using digital. It's not it's not an issue anymore. But back in the 80s, I mean, Rai Kuda's, which was the album? Um, Bop to your drop. Bop to your drop. I remember it, this because I was furious when that album came out because I liked it musically, but I couldn't stand the sound of it. It was too sterile. Yeah. And, that's, and Ry Cooter himself has now just completely disowned that album. Yes, he, he, absolutely, he absolutely hates the sound of it. Um, I was just reading a, a, another thing, which is probably going to go in, in a week or so, uh, about Steely Dan, and they're having exactly the same conversation around pretty much exactly the same time. You know, mm. First of all, you're really impressed because you can hear everything, and there's no tape hiss, there's no background noise, there's none of the shit which happens with, tape, with analog tape machines. So initially the impression is, this is fantastic. And then sort of doubts start appearing in your mind about, you know, do you actually like the sound of what you're listening to? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, 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 it's really interesting. So that's, that's um, on Fantastic. that happy note. Jasper, um, what have you got for us? <laughs> that actually, A, is fascinating, and B, segues really well into the first Ooh. thing that I wanted to talk Ooh. about, which is Simon Reynolds in Pitchfork writing, it's an article called Maximal Nation, and it takes an album by a producer called Rusty, the album's called Glass Swords, as a starting point for this incredible deep dive into the evolution of electronic music to what Simon Reynolds calls the thrilling excess of digital maximalism. <laughs> so it's a long essay, and it's, it's a really great, it's well worth a read. It's very thorough, very interesting about that whole transition into, you know, from from early techno and early house into a, a state where electronic music producers have all these options on digital audio workstations. It's just great. If Glass Swords represents the triumph of more is more, the path to victory was paved by Rusty's buddy Hudson Mohawk. Other key figures in the rise of maximalism include Flying Lotus and Thundercat. And that combining those two things is, is fascinating at this time. It's written in 2011. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, they're, they're operating in quite different sonic worlds, but have this common thread of this big, big sound tapestry of just lots of stuff layered on top of each other. He mentions Justice, who pioneered an early form of Digimax overload with the 2D blare of 2007's Cross album. Although he's kind of, he, he finds it to be all of Prog's oppressive bombastitude, but with none of its redeeming complexity, fleetness, <laughs> and occasional sublimity. But I actually disagree because I find that Justice avoids being oppressively bombastic 
because it really drives forward, unlike a lot of prog, and also because it has a sort of sense of self awareness. And uh, you know, it's, I happen to really like. Well, justice, you turned me I, on I to justice, Jasper, and I'm in your debt. Just for 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 the song Randy alone, I am forever in your debt. It's one of my absolute favorite pieces of kind of, I suppose, sort of neo daft punky electronica yeah. it's just it's just fabulous yeah and all that bombast really is fantastic i think yeah. but he kind of concludes on this in this question of the master of the universe feeling provided by these digital audio programs uh, becoming at once a composer free to internally tweak your score and a conductor able to repeatedly configure your orchestra and run through endless variations of interpretation he wonders how people manage to even start a track let alone finish one the combination of computer infinite flexibility and internet infinite inspiration in quotes can also cause complete artistic paralysis the impulse of fusion collapsing into confusion the musical equivalent of a gone too far collage i think it's a great piece of writing and a really interesting investigation into that whole into that whole question. i mean he's always good simon reynolds he's such, such, yeah. such I mean, a wonderful guest as well on the podcast not so yeah, very well yeah. yeah indeed yeah, great that's excellent And then the last thing to mention is a very recent article from about a year ago by Mark Sinker in The Observer. COVID has pushed pop culture into nostalgia. It's time for something new. And it's interesting to read this kind of thing as we're still in the midst of COVID and the impact it's had on on musicians and other artists has been enormous and, and very negative. But this is kind of a comment on what the culture industry has turned to to try and keep things going, which is basically nostalgia. But it concludes on a, on a more hopeful note. TikTok's freedoms may not last, and what, any one meme can be monetized and ruined as copyright laws smother creative conversation. Yet the thriving energy of these myriad unpaid collisions remains. Every pre-existing fragment is multiply repurposed to be extremely weird. This was the future that was being overlooked in 2010. Of course, we can't know what the 2020s will bring, but as long as every app's update renders the internet more broken, all this too will survive as glitching parasites in the flow. And so, as long as the machines remain connected, will we, exhausted and baffled and unbowed, which I think is actually <laughs> really, really nice and, and more hopeful than one might expect given everything that's happened. I remember reading that piece last year. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, people will, historians will look back the COVID period and, and what it what it meant for for music. So I think that'll that'll turn out to be, you know, a seminal piece. So thanks for that. That's my lot. That's your lot. Great. Well well, so we've come to the end of the episode and it remains And we're for, still alive. And we're still alive. <laughs> we are still alive. We don't really How have we don't have time really to say goodbye to two huge figures we lost last week. But I will just mention Ronnie Spector and Michael Lang, among other people who passed away. I did get to see Ronnie Spector live once when she was with Southside Johnny and the Asbury Dukes. Oh, yeah. Hammersmith Odeon. She came out and sung, what's it, Hooray for Hollywood or whatever, Goodbye to Hollywood. Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Say Goodbye to Hollywood. And a couple of other tunes with the the, the Asbury Dukes. And it was was fun. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And, of course... You, Michael, as uh, as you say, a fully paid up member of the Woodstock Nation, I guess <laughs> you might have some feelings about the passing of Michael Lang. I don't know if you ever met him or knew him. No, I never. I never met him. I I always had mixed feelings about Michael Lang, but 
you know, ultimately, I think his legacy has been positive. I mean, as bored as everybody is, including at times me, and I've written about Woodstock 69, even though I wasn't there, he was a visionary, and uh, I applaud him for that. And uh, he was kind of a cool guy. Yeah. Well, we featured a couple of audio interviews last week, yeah, one with Ronnie and and one with Michael. So check those out, Ronnie. One of the great sort of sirens oh, just of fabulous. American pop. And she survived horrible films. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way of kind of... I mean, it was interesting because I posted, as part of the the long goodbye feature on Ronnie, I think I added an interview that Richard Williams had done in 1971 with Ronnie. And he emailed me afterwards and said, oh God, I wish you hadn't added that. It's so, it's so painful to read things like that, knowing what we know now. I mean, it wasn't like Ronnie, I don't know if Ronnie was talking at all about how Phil had treated him. And it wasn't like nobody knew what Phil was like in 71, but we didn't know what we know now. Yeah, sure. Right. So, you know, I mean, I think I said to Rich, I can, I can remove the piece if you'd prefer. He said, no, it's, it's fine. It just, it's just kind of mortifying to sort of see how people wrote about Phil Spector back in those days. Anyway, we did a whole episode on on Phil Spector and we won't go down that road. We've had our fill of Phil. Phil of Phil. Exactly. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been Thank such you fun. All you guys, yeah. Well, it's I been great. It. Thanks for coming yeah. on. It's been, it's been super. <laughs> so, more power to you and the next set of Dylan liner notes or whatever it is you're going to be doing this year. I hope you have a great year. I hope we all come out of COVID finally and able to resume some sort of normal life. <laughs> and of course, we're all hoping that Boris Johnson is dumped in the garbage. Sooner rather than later. That's what's going on. And he takes Donald Trump with him. At we, yeah, yes, <laughs> Donald Trump lives in garbage. He doesn't need to be put in it. So we're going to say goodbye, Mark. You can just talk us out with the final clip. Yes, if I can remember what it is. Let me see. Oh yes, here we are. Um, yeah, it's it's basically the moment Lowell George walks into the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so, Super. So that that's it. Great, brilliant. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with guest. Kate Mossman, uh, oh, our friend Kate. Uh, don't know what we'll be talking about. But we're certainly talking with Kate. And um, so we will all say ta ta now. Bye. Bye. Thank you, guys. Van Dyke Parks, I'd like to introduce you to a Mr. Lowell George. Lowell George, this is Van Dyke Parks. So Call me anything, but don't call me late, late to dinner. Lunch. <laughs> dinner? Yeah, you are late. This is John Cobler. This is Lowell Hello, George. John. Good to meet you. Lowell, would you like a glass of red wine? No, thanks. Okay. Please sit down. Please, no, please. No. <laughs> I can't rock and roll anything. That's <laughs> it. Do you need any more light on the subject? Or yes, please. Is, is okay? I'd like Lowell's complexion to show oh, up. Her profile is obvious. Oh, uh, here, can I throw this out of a window? It seems appropriate. Well, yeah. um, couldn't we find a, a proper ashtray? Yeah, that we, ha- we have one. There's an ashtray. No, I, I do. What's it left it. in here? You don't just throw it away. No, it's better that way. Yes, leave where, it where did that? Where did that come from? <laughs> a nice it, aroma. It, Naked Snake Publishing. I can't, I got it across the street at uh, what Ted, uh, next to where Ted Ashley used to have his office. Oh, tiny Teddy. That's a beautiful cigar, man. That's, how much does that come to? <laughs>
That's really nice. Yeah, I was, I was waiting for the revolution. You gotta put on your sailing shoes. Put on your sailing shoes. Everybody start to cheat when you put on your sailing shoes. That was Van Dyke Park in conversation with John Tobler in 1973, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Michael Simmons. Find his writing on RBP, as well as in the Huffington Post and LA Weekly. Follow him on Twitter at TheFirstMunz, that's T-H-E-1-S-T-M-U-N-Z. Please note that this episode was recorded before the death of Meatloaf, so we'll be paying tribute to him in the next episode. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Rocks Back Pages.